Continuing with this summer sermon series from the Pastoral Epistles, I'm reading today from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Do not speak harshly to an older man, but speak to him as a father, to younger men as brothers, to older women as mothers, to younger women as sisters. Speak with absolute purity. Honor widows who are really widows. If a widow has children or grandchildren, they should first learn their religious duty to their own family and make some repayment to their parents, for this is pleasing in God's sight. The real widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But the widow who lives for pleasure or luxury is dead even while she lives. Give these commands as well so that they may be above reproach. And whoever does not provide for relatives and especially for family members has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be put on the list if she's not less than 60 years old and has been married only once. She must be well attested for her good works as one who has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to doing good in every way. But refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when their sensual desires alienate them from Christ, they want to marry. And so they incur a condemnation for having violated their first pledge. Besides that, they learn to be idle, gadding about from house to house. And they're not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not say. Welcome back, Casey. <laughs> it's always great reading these passages with female clergy and females in the congregation. And you always seem to come back from vacation just to be welcomed by one of these. So we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Believe me. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are really widows, let her assist them. Let the church not be burdened so that it can assist those who are real widows. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O oh God, may the light of the Sabbath bring the dawn of welcome into the closet of the philosopher, the garret of toil, the prison cell the pew. May it bring new love, new faith, new sight to all of us in receiving its rays today and to those beyond. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I want to begin today with a bit of lore that is passed down concerning my extended family. A family that's so small that the few bits of lore that I have received reside especially strong in my consciousness. My late father had an older sister named Nelda who married a sailor named Larry 
sometime before he went off to serve as a Navy pilot in World War II. While Larry was away, Nelda lived with her parents and her younger brother, my father, and worked as a desk clerk at the one hotel in the Arkansas town in which they lived. Larry survived the war, returned home, resumed his life with Nelda, and was reunited with his own parents and younger sister who also lived in that town. Shortly after coming home, Larry flew in a Sunday afternoon air show at the fairgrounds just outside of town in which tickets were sold to people who wanted to to ride with him one at a time as he performed stunts and feats that he had learned flying as a Navy pilot. One man who bought a ticket apparently panicked as Larry guided the small plane through mid-air somersaults. The man tried to grab the controls, causing the plane to crash and leading to his and Larry's death. The police came to the hotel and told Nelda, who was on duty at the time, and then they told Larry's parents and 16-year-old sister. Four years later, Nelda's brother and Larry's sister fell in love during their first semester in college. They dropped out and got married. Four years later, they gave birth to me and named me after the Navy pilot. Hence, the small size of my extended family because there are a minimum of cousins. But that's not the part of the family lore that speaks to us today. At age 22 and widowed, Nelda still worked at the front desk of the hotel. At some point, she noticed and was noticed by a handsome man a few years older who stopped at the hotel on his route of driving the Greyhound bus from Florida to California. In a matter of days, she left town with the man. They settled in Arizona. They lived on a small ranch. They produced four sons. Then a decade or so later, he left, leaving Nelda with four sons, no education, no job, and a small ranch to manage. Now, when Nelda settled in Arizona, at some point she became a Mormon. And this was several years before Mormons were as known or accepted in our society as they have become in the generation, in the decades since. When she was left a single mother, the ward, which is the local Mormon church, was there to help. Food, clothing, school supplies for the boys. A bit later, the congregation took a larger step. They made it possible for Nelda to go to college, become a teacher, earn a master's degree. I only met Nelda three times, all over 40 years ago. And I have met her sons, my cousins, only once. And that was over 50 years ago. 
Prior to piecing this story together, I used to take pride in telling people that I was the first member of my family to graduate from college. But I was not. Nelda beat me by a few years, in part because of what the church did for her in her hour of need. Writing this part of the sermon on Friday, the warmth of her story came back to me fresh and new as a rich jewel in an otherwise dark and murky family story. I was glad I retrieved this jewel from the attic in which it it had been hidden away for years. The text before us today contains both jewel and attic. The text comes from 1 Timothy, one of three pastoral epistles, books which, as we've seen during this summer sermon series, lie tucked away toward the end of the New Testament, rarely explored like an old trunk in the corner of an attic. In the passage we just read, an aging Apostle Paul is depicted as turning over the leadership of a few house churches likely in Ephesus, which is present-day Turkey, to his young, up-and-coming understudy named Timothy. It is now 30 to 50 years at least after the death of Christ. What had begun as a strong, fast-growing, idealistic movement at Pentecost has begun to lose some of its, some of its edge. Christ has not, as had been expected, Returned. The church finds itself as a minority living under Roman imperialism. Many of its members and leaders have been persecuted or killed. It has grown from being a vibrant, fervent, almost revolutionary movement to being a small organization in scattered house churches with officers and leaders and rules and regulations, but more or less simply hoping to survive, flying under the radar, not to be noticed by the imperial powers of Rome. As Timothy prepares to assume leadership of these house churches, among the instructions he receives from Paul is a significant chapter concerning the church's care of its members who are needy, particularly widows, many of whom, most of whom, have no way of supporting themselves. Honor widows who were really widows, Paul writes, If a widow has children or grandchildren, they should first learn their religious duty to their own family and make some repayment to their parents for rearing and nurturing them. If any believing woman has relatives who are really widows, let her assist them so that the congregation at large can assist those who are real widows. I would have younger widows marry, bear children, and manage their households. But let a widow be put on the list if she's not less than 60 years old and has been married only once and therefore received or inherited the support of only one husband. Honor widows who are really widows. 
like the local ward of the Mormon church that supported my aunt and her sons. In this letter, it is clearly the duty of the small house churches in first century diaspora Christianity to determine who among its members has need and to focus the church's support toward such members. But the text is not so universally heartwarming as to be all jewel. Within the advice that Paul gives Timothy, some of the language Paul uses is no more elevating than the smell of an attic. Frankly, some of the words that Paul uses are angry, dismissive, condescending, and stereotypical. I'm sure they did stand out to you. You heard them, you giggled, you laughed, but you heard them as I read them. The widow who lives for pleasure or luxury is dead even while she lives. Whoever does not provide for relatives and especially for family members has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Refuse to put younger widows on the list. For they learn to be idle, gadding about from house to house. They're not merely idle, but they're gossips and busybodies saying what they should not say. I'm glad you laughed. In my opinion... For an experienced leader of the church like Paul, preparing to turn the reins of leadership over to the next generation, to use such language is unpardonable, at least in the earthly sense. The determination as, as to who should receive the church's support is, legitimate, is a legitimate and necessary process for the leader to lead as is the development of criteria for receiving such support. But for the leader of the process, let alone of the congregation, to use language that reveals either that the leader has been burned one too many times and it is clearly time for him to pass the reins on, or he can only see the members of the church as stereotypes rather than as individuals. In either case, this language is damaging to the individuals and it is damaging to the community. It reflects more about the leader than about the members who have need. And several years ago, Professor Tom Long presented this material at the Movable Feast Preaching Group. He said, quote, I wish the writer hadn't said these things. I do too. These words clearly belong back in the attic. But Scripture isn't just a collection of nice, sparkling jewels. Scripture contains both jewel and attic, and both, before us, both are before us in this passage. Their combined presence leads me to ask these questions. Can this passage in its entirety speak to us, the community of the United States of America, in 2016? Can these words from the past say anything to us as we try to determine in our society who should receive support in our families, 
in our churches and school districts, in our social service agencies, in our national life? Can this passage potentially inform the intricacies of politics and governance in which we live and through which we make policy decisions that in many ways define who we are as a nation? I believe this passage can speak to us in this way. So let me outline three very brief ways that I think it speaks to us. First, and at the most fundamental level, this passage reminds us that not everyone is able to care for himself or herself. While the writer is speaking about members of the church, what he says is true for all sectors of society. Not everyone in a family, not everyone in a church, not every citizen of a state is able to provide life's most basic needs. It seems odd to have to say this, but there are strands of discourse in our nation in which on the one hand we seem to have become so discouraged, so threatened, so afraid, so frustrated, so angry, so distrustful, or on the other hand, we have become so enamored of our inventiveness and our ingenuity and our achievement that we have lost the ability or the discipline to look at some of our fellow human being, beings and see genuine need. Sometimes our language is no better than that in this passage. When that is the case, the jewel in this passage reminds us, let a widow be put on the list to receive the support of the community. The passage reminds us that there is real human need whose meeting lies within our capacity and which because of its reality and our capacity we are not free to ignore. Second, this passage holds up the value of there being a process for determining who most needs and therefore should first receive the support of the community. We cannot tell from this text the nature of that process though it appears to be formal, involving a list of people who have met criteria for support from the church. And it appears to have several well-considered conditions that shape that criteria. The point is that in some way the community and its leader working together have figured out whose need is most critical and legitimate and whose need therefore will receive the uncompromising support of the entire community. And third, that process by its very nature involves what we call politics. As discredited as this word has become among us, 
Politics is nothing more than the people of a community working together to decide how to implement a value they have in common. In this instance, that real widows, that people with need, will be supported by the church. Yesterday I attended part of the morning worship service at Aguda Sakim Synagogue around the corner and up the street. It's hard to say this statement, but this time, ten years ago, we were holding worship services at Aguda Sakim with their wonderful, comfortable chairs. <laughs> we were doing so as our own facility was being renovated. When our renovation was complete and we moved back into this facility as one way of saying thanks, we made a significant contribution to a fund they maintain to complete the 15 artistic pillars which are around their sanctuary. Sufficient funds having recently been raised they have completed the pillar to which we made a contribution, a pillar whose theme is community. In the service of dedication yesterday, the now emeritus rabbi, Jack Moline, spoke about community. We're all part of many different communities, he said. Family is community. Neighborhood is community. Work is community, school are communities, and country is community. Communities, he said, are comprised of a diverse population with a set of common values. A diverse population, that means that the members are different in inherent ways from one another. And common values, that means the things that unite them are more important in this context than the things that divide them. Without diversity, Jack continued, you do not have community. You have a Xerox machine. You have clones. You have neither Baskin nor Robbins. Just 31 tubs of vanilla. He can still turn a phrase. And without those values, you do not have a community either. You have a mob. You have strangers. You have the upper level platform at LaFont Plaza during rush hour on a day when the Nationals are playing. Everyone wants the same thing, but only for himself or herself. I happened to hear Jack's words within 12 hours of Maggie and I having been with another couple at the Nats game the night before. In one of the middle innings, the ushers came up to our section and started tossing really nice Nats hats into the crowd. It was a hat giveaway, I guess. We were easily within reach of grabbing a hat or two. 
So I really got revved up. I started reaching over people and leaping over people. I caught one hat and immediately gave it to Maggie. The woman in our party talked an usher into giving her a hat that matched the color of her dress. And then I, meanwhile, leaped over another person and caught another hat and gave it to the man in our party. I felt like I was 16 years old again going up and getting rebounds off the glass from people that were much taller than me. It is the most adrenaline and energy that I've felt in ages. It was wonderful. (laughs) I even thought, this must be what it was like when Marie Antoinette said, let them eat cake. (laughs) And I was grabbing all the cake. Within a second or less of my handing the hat to the man in the party with us, I saw him take it and place it on the blonde head of a little girl in a red jersey who was seated right in front of me. who was looking forlorn (laughs) and whom I had not noticed. I was part of a mob. He was part of a community. Let a widow be put on the list.